Thanks, Ian. For those who don't know me, I'm Jeff Leader. I'm part of the ministry team here, and uh, it's my great privilege to bring you this sermon tonight. We're going to talk about uh, enduring, which uh, is the final part of our vision series. Just get myself set up here. Right. And it's part of our goal of living new life in Jesus. As Christian believers, we're called to live a life that is faithful, adventurous, compassionate and enduring. You all know it, or hopefully you all know it by now. But tonight we're just going to focus on the last one, which is enduring. And look at what that actually means. And it's, it's a word we can sort of just gloss over in some ways, but there's a lot of rich meaning to that word, which uh, just pays to uh, spend a bit of time studying it. So before we move on, let me just pray and uh, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your, the gift of your word and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that as we look at your guidance, your direction, your teaching on this concept of endurance, that you will speak to our hearts, that you'll convict us and challenge us. We ask this through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now tonight I just want to focus on uh, one passage, that's Hebrews 12. There's lots of passages throughout Scripture, particularly, is that me? Um, which mention endurance and things like running the race, perseverance, endurance. But I think we just stay with Romans chapter 12, which is our first reading, the first 13 verses in particular, and uh, take it from, just see what that has to say to us. Now... Yeah. Oh, that worked. Okay. <laughs> That's better. Okay. Uh, in ancient Greek and Roman times, the, uh, the people in those days are very keenly interested in athletic contests, uh, not only for their physical well-being, but also for the honour of representing uh, their town or city or, the, or their country. It was a patriotic thing to be a good athlete and to bring glory to your, the, the people you were representing. Uh, this is just a, one example of some runners uh, running a race in the, um, in the stadium at the time. It's interesting, as I was, I was sort of researching these uh, pictures, most of the athletes, all the athletes were competing, competing naked and some of them were fairly graphic. So that one I felt was appropriate for church. So you're not going to see the others. but <laughs> I'll leave that up to your own Google search. So when we come to Hebrews 12, we see two themes in this chapter. theme of athletics and the theme of citizenship. And the image we have is of a foot race. And this image of a foot race is very well known to the early Christian believers who this letter was written to. The runners or contestants uh, in this picture are finished with their training. They've laid aside their, their training weights and they're ready for the main event, the race they've trained hard for. They're there in the stadium ready to compete and they're competing. Now, they would all start 
But as the race went on, some would get weary and drop out. Look, this guy who's lying there on the road. Weariness, fatigue, to the point where they'd collapse. Others, though, would endure. They'd endure the strain and press on with tired muscles and aching feet all the way to the end, all the way to the finish line and hopefully to win the prize at the end. The writer of Hebrews uses this picture of the race in the first 13 verses of Hebrews 12 to talk about endurance. And then in the second part of the chapter, which we won't have time to look at today, but in, that, uh, in those verses, 14 to 29, he talks about citizenship, and particularly citizenship in the heavenly city. Now, in the minds of his readers, that's why it's important just to mention this, these two themes would go together because no one could take part in any official games unless they were a citizen of a city, state, or of a nation, country. But the theme I want to focus on, and it actually runs right through this chapter, is that of endurance. Is that not coming through? Hmm, okay. Be right? Okay. Is that not coming through? No, okay. Ditch that. Uh, where were we? Right. Endurance, that's right. Now, the Jewish believers, I won't be able to wave both hands now. <laughs> The Jewish believers who received this letter, they were in a situation where they were getting weary, they were withdrawing, they wanted to give up. They were tired. They were tired of being persecuted, criticised, they were ostracised by people in the community. They felt like they were outcasts in the community. And it was starting to get to them. And the feeling is they just wanted to pull back, withdraw. This being a Christian really wasn't worth the effort. It was hard work. So the writer encourages them in this letter to keep moving forward in their Christian lives. Like the runners on the track. Because the prize at the end is so valuable, so important, so significant that they've got to keep running. They've got to stay in the race. They've got to endure even when the going gets tough, when life gets challenging. So how does the writer encourage them and us? Well, first of all, he reminds us of the example of other winners who have run the race in the past. He starts the chapter by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Now, these words are often read out of context in the sense that they're taken to mean that the departed saints are spectators of our progress in life, or lack of it, that they can see what we're doing and that they're standing on the sidelines encouraging us to persevere. It's like you can imagine a great heavenly grandstand with all these heroes of the faith sort of sitting up there watching what we're doing and cheering us on in life. I think if you're in heaven, you'd have other better things to do than looking back. You'd be looking to God and worshipping him and enjoying his company rather than uh, observing what's going on back here on earth. However, the context suggests something entirely different. For such a great cloud 
It actually, because it starts with therefore, and you remember that this sort of links to the previous section, it refers primarily, this cloud of witnesses, to the Old Testament believers mentioned in chapter 11. People like Abel, Enoch, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, Moses, David, and so on. They are there for us to look at them, not for them to look at us. We receive their witness to God's faithfulness as we read about them in Scripture. And they still speak to us even though they are dead. They witness to us as examples of enduring faith, not as a, a heavenly cheer squad in the stands. These godly men and women in the Old Testament knew what it was to endure, and that's why they're used as examples here. So if you're having problems in your family, read about Joseph. If you think your job is too big for you, study the life of Moses or perhaps even Nehemiah. If you're tempted to retaliate, then see how the David handled this problem. Next, the writer tells us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You see, we're supposed to be inspired by the example of self-discipline of those described in chapter 11. In our life of faith, we should first get rid of things which may not necessarily be wrong, but which slow us down, they hinder us, they drag us down. And secondly, we need to get rid of sinful things, things that trip us up. Now, the first point, in the ancient days, athletes used to wear training weights. They used to strap weights around their legs to help them prepare for events, and they'd train with these weights strapped to their legs. But no athlete would actually compete with these training weights because it would slow them down, wouldn't it? It would not help them. Too much weight would tax their endurance in the, in the race. So think for a moment. In our situation, what are the weights that we need to remove so that we might win the race, that we might endure? The things that hinder our progress in our Christian walk. Now, they may be good things in the eyes of others, but a winning athlete does not choose between the good and the bad. They choose between the better and the best. It may be, for example, working excessively long hours, leaving little or no time or energy for our family or having a meaningful relationship with Jesus. It may be extending yourself financially, overextending yourself, with uh, mortgages or loans, things that leave us bogged down with worry and stress. Or it may be not looking after yourself physically, of eating the wrong foods, of not exercising, of not getting sufficient sleep. These things just weigh, weigh us down. They tire us. They weary us. These are the sort of things that hinder us in growing a relationship with Jesus. But we should also get rid of sin, the sin that so easily entangles. Now, 
we could say a lot on this topic, but no specific sin here is mentioned in Hebrews. But the writer is probably referring to the sin of unbelief. You know, it was unbelief that kept the Israelites out of the promised land for 40 years. Unbelief. When we question the reality of God and his faithfulness, we question his promises, it hinders us from entering into our spiritual inheritance in Jesus. That is, a, It stops us from having a deep personal relationship with our Lord and Saviour. You know, if we jump back to um, chapter 11, you know, the words by faith are used 21 times in that chapter. And that indicates that it is faith in Jesus that will enable us to endure. When we actually believe God's promises of provision, that God will keep, God will keep the promises he makes, that he will provide for our needs, when we believe that in faith, we're able to trust in his ability to provide for our needs. And we can stop trying to provide for ourselves, to do, it, do things in our own strength. So the writer now tells us to fix our eyes upon Jesus in order to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You see, whereas the people in the Old Testament look forward to a Messiah or Christ, the Messiah who was foretold by the prophets, the readers of the Hebrews, or the readers of the Hebrews, could look to a Jesus. They could look to a Christ or Messiah who had come, who had come in the flesh, who had come down to earth. But the writer is also aware that the, his readers can't do this with their physical eyes. But he also knows what can be seen with the eyes of faith. To fix our eyes on Jesus is to remember his status as God and a man. It's to remember his obedience to the Father. It is to remember his suffering and death on the cross. It is to remember his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of the Father in heaven. It is to believe in the Jesus described in the book of Hebrews and indeed the entire New Testament. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, it goes on to say in verse 2. For he is the one, he is also the one for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, Jesus endured a horrible, awful, painful, shameful death because there was a purpose at the end of it. There was joy. He looked forward to the joy. What was that joy? It was a joy of returning to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father and, and to know that the Father would say to him, well done, my beloved son. You've achieved the victory over sin and death. Enter into my joy. But it's also in order to have the joy of bringing salvation to other people of seeing people believing in him, putting their faith in him, and then joining him in heaven at the end of the days on earth. Jesus endured far more than any of the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. 
However, he is the perfect example we are called to follow. It says he endured the cross. A cross that involves shame, suffering, rejection, abuse and abandonment. On the cross he suffered for all the sins of the entire world. Yet he endured and he finished the work the Father gave him to do. And though the readers of the Hebrews had suffered persecution, they had not yet resisted to, or experienced uh, persecution to that extent. They hadn't become martyrs. They hadn't been killed for their beliefs. But in Jesus' battle against sin, he died. He suffered and died. He shed his own blood. But Jesus is not just a human Jesus who has endured shame. We're called to follow his example, believe it or not. He's also someone we can identify with in our weaknesses. But this Jesus, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God he is now at the place of supreme power and authority in the universe where he can effectively help us in times of need, of distress, of hardship, of suffering. So to fix our eyes on Jesus is not to escape from the world. It is an encouragement. These are the key words in this chapter. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. It's an encouragement to continue living in this world, persevering or enduring what life brings before us. We do that with God's help. So what was it that enabled Jesus to endure the cross? It was his faith that enabled him to endure. He kept the eye of faith on the joy set before him and because he knew he would return to heaven and glory having completed the Father's will, which will include, being able to, as I said, being able to present believers to the Father in glory. Isn't it great to know that we'll have a place in heaven? When we finish this life on earth, we too will join him in heaven for eternity. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It says Jesus whoops. It says Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And the old versions used to say author rather than pioneer, but it just means that um, Jesus was the originator. He brought about he opened the door of salvation. And he's the perfecter of our faith because he fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament promises. He fulfilled the commands of the Father. And so it says he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And you know, trusting him releases God's power in our lives. When we get that on board, when we understand it properly. You know, just as using a, a sporting example, we could try, try to follow the example of some great athlete and we can do that, watch this athlete for years. And yet, if we try to compete in the same way, we could still be a failure. But if in our younger days that athlete could have entered into our lives 
and shared their know-how and experience, their abilities with us, they could have made us a winner too. You see, Jesus is both our example, but he's also our enabler. And as we see him in his word and yield to his Holy Spirit, he increases our faith and he enables us to run the race. Okay, next bit. We're given yet another reason for endurance in verse 11. God's love is received in the discipline of hardship. You see, the trials and hardships of a Christian's life are seen as spiritual discipline that help a believer mature. In fact, it's it, and this is something I came across as I was researching this, but it's true. It's usually through suffering that we mature spiritually as Christians. It's usually through suffering that we mature as Christians. Because it is at these times when we face the hardships of life, when we feel vulnerable and helpless, even desperate. And yeah, life is tough. And I don't think anybody will go through life just having a nice smooth go road. We will all experience um, trauma, tragedy, grief at some stage in our lives. But it's at these times that we find our Heavenly Father is right there with us, helping us to endure the time of suffering and hardship. It's at those times when we throw ourselves on our knees, acknowledging that we can't do it in our own strength, that we need him, and we pour our hearts out to God. And that draws us closer to him because he's promised to stand with us in these times. He's promised to walk with us through the dark valleys of our and dark times of our lives. And he's promised to provide the resilience and the resources we will need to get through to the end. And so it's a, 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 when we reach the end of our own abilities, it's there we learn how great God is. And we learn to become totally dependent on God to provide for our needs. In this way, we grow closer to him. We deepen our relationship with him. And we mature as Christian believers. You know, when things go wrong and we're frustrated, it's easy to think that God does not truly love us. And to see things going wrong is a sign of God's anger towards us or his neglect of us. This is not the case. In verses 5 and 6 it says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and he refers to Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So therefore... He says, continues, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are, dis are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Now we're looking at... Um, 
earthly fathers, using that as the illustration, let me just say we're looking at good fathers. We're not talking about abusive fathers who uh, use discipline or uh, violence to abuse their children. We're looking at correctional discipline. I think it's probably a better word. Rather than the harshness of that discipline implies, we are God, our Heavenly Father, wants to correct us and keep us on the right path in life. But the writer here is reminding his readers that children who are never disciplined are those who are disregarded by their parents. It's a sign that they're actually not loved if they're not disciplined. And you know what? God deals with us as, as adult children because we have been adopted and given an adult standing in his family. It is evidence of the Father's love. It's a great privilege we have to be a part of God's family. But Satan wants us to believe that the difficulties of life are proof that God does not love us. But just the opposite is true. Our Heavenly Father does not want us to be pampered babies, spoilt babies. He wants us to become mature adults who can be trusted with the responsibilities of life. And, you know, he wants us to develop the fruits of the Spirit, just, um, which are referred to in Galatians 6, of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. He wants to equip us to deal with the problems and frustrations of life with God's help. You know, and without those frustrations and problems, we would remain immature, untrustworthy, and uh, untrustworthy of his kingdom. So the writer then uses this picture of the discipline of earthly parents to further illustrate his point. He says... First, if we receive our earthly father's discipline, we should, the, at, should all the more accept God's. He says, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? And then secondly, both forms of discipline are intended to change us. But God's discipline is far more positive. He says... They disciplined us for a while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our, good, for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. However, the writer is realistic enough to recognise that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained in it. That's right. No discipline at the time is pleasant to either a parent or a child. But there are benefits, and the benefits are worthwhile. They're profitable. I don't think many people, would, uh, many children would believe their parents when they say things like, well, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. But it's true just the same. A loving father does not enjoy having to discipline his children. But the benefits afterwards make the disciplining an evidence of his love. So then returning to the race metaphor in verse 12, those who run the race with perseverance and endurance throw off the things that hinder them. 
They fixed their eyes on Jesus firmly. Jesus who has finished the race before them. And they are trained by receiving God's loving discipline. In fact, the writer knows that his readers are not in the best condition for this race. He encouraged them with these words from uh, Isaiah 35 and Proverbs 4. He says, Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. In the case of our Heavenly Father, these benefits include a closer, deeper relationship with him. It includes a life of peace with God and with other people. As we train ourselves in righteous, godly living, and we do that by obeying his commands. And all this leads to joy and peace in life, a life of joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the sad consequences of getting slack in our quiet times with reading God's word is that we lose the encouragement that we find there. If we're not reading our Bibles, we don't get to know who God is. We don't get to know who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We miss the promises that God's made to us. We miss those encouraging words that are there. And when we don't have that resource in our life, when we're not reading our Bibles regularly and consistently, then it will bring us to the edge of giving up because we're not being fed and nurtured by the Word of God. And when we neglect to pray, when we stop talking to God and having a regular quiet time and a focused time of prayer with God, when we stop our daily conversation with God, where we share our needs, our desires, our hopes and our dreams, if we're not having that conversation with God, he will seem distant, he'll seem remote, that he's not interested in us or that he's irrelevant to our situation. If we're not having that conversation, how can we have a a relationship with him? How can we grow in that relationship with him? And when we stop meeting with other believers, this too isolates us. We lose the encouragement that other Christian believers can give us. When we stop coming to church, you'll see church just as, oh, well, if I feel like it, I'll come. I won't put myself into it. I won't engage with other people. When we look at our life groups during the week and think the same thing, We're missing out on that opportunity to share with one another, to help each other. As the guy in the picture at the bottom there is, to, yeah, we all struggle at times. We all need help. We need other people's prayer and support um, and practical help as well. If we're not engaging with people, then we can't draw on that support as well. So we're encouraged to read our Bibles, to pray and to keep close contact with other Christian believers. 
Because in this life, as I said before, we will all encounter tough times. We may lose someone who is close to us. We may experience financial hardship. We may have to suffer physically through periods of illness and infirmity. We may be hurt by broken relationships and false accusations and unfair criticisms. We may experience deep concern over our children's decisions in life. Will your faith survive those times of trial? Is your faith, your life, resting on a firm and secure foundation of faith in Jesus? Is your faith unshakable and resilient and will it endure to the end? Only you can answer those questions. But the solution is simple. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's our focus. And if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we have a purpose, we have a goal in life. And we won't be tempted to wander and try and do things in our own strength. We'll look to Jesus and draw on his strength, his encouragement, his support. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. In our tree brochure, we have some very helpful questions uh, in this regard. Make a point of asking your brothers and sisters and Lord how they are going in the race that's set before them. Ask them where they're struggling in need of encouragement. Now, to do that, you need to build a relationship, an honest, caring relationship. And they're hard questions. They're hard personal questions to ask. And it's easy to shrug it off and say, oh, fine. Okay. All right. But we need to develop honesty in our relationships. So the second question is, do you have someone in your life who knows you well enough to ask these questions? It needs to be one or two people. But it needs needs to be people that you can be honest with, who can listen with understanding, with care, perhaps provide sow some wisdom into your life, but to keep you on track. We're in this race together and we need each other to keep our eyes, our hearts, our minds fixed upon Jesus. Amen. Skip that. Oh, more space. Deeper with Jesus. That's the 2019 year plan. Question and Q&A. Okay, I've got the microphone. Michael's got a microphone. We've all got microphones. Awesome. Uh, Any questions? Okay. Hopefully I've given you something to think about tonight. Um, How do we endure our life of being a believer and apprentice of our Lord Jesus. I got off easy. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Right.